Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Avis Babulian on the RiderFlex podcast. Hello, Avis. Welcome to the show. Hello, Steve. Thank you for having me. So you're in uh, beautiful LA today. I'm guessing what is, is it the weather the usual? 79, sunny, perfect. I think, yeah, I think we're in the 80s. Feels like 90s. <laughs> I always love it when I, I talk to people from LA and they're like, oh, it's super hot or oh, it's super cold. It, <laughs> <laughs> everyone complains about it, complains about the four, lack of four seasons, but if it comes down to it, nobody's willing to swap it out. Yeah. You've been there for a long time, huh? Yep. Ever since we moved there from Armenia, 87, 88. Wow. Okay. Never lived in another state in, in, in the U.S., just there the whole time. Well, I relocated to Boston, Massachusetts uh, for a short, brief period of time, then came back here. Okay. But grew up in Armenia? Yeah. No, I was six, six and a half uh, when we came here. Uh, grew up in the Valley, Granada Hills, moved to Glendale, 97, 98. Been here ever since. Tell me about your family a little bit. Mom, dad, what they do for a living and uh, siblings, things like that. Yeah, so I uh, came here. Uh, I make our family from uh, Armenia back when we came here. It was still part of the Soviet Union. Mm. So that worked around the clock. Um, Provide the opportunities. Both parents, super, uh, super phenomenal family. A lot of my success is due to my family. Um, a lot of what I do, what's prime front and center is just trying to justify the sacrifices that they made to come here and provide the opportunities that they've provided and not let it go to waste. Um, I have a brother. I have a sister. I'm the oldest of three. Um, got a beautiful wife, three beautiful kids, 10 years old four years old and two years old. Oh man, you're, you're busy at home. Okay. You, you're, 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 uh, yeah, it's busy at your house. <laughs> well, <it's busy. laughs> what's your, what'd your dad do for a living? So he started off in construction. Uh, when we came here, he was doing everything from pizza delivery to construction, working about 18, 19 hours a day. Then, uh, went to school to be a paralegal, started working at a law firm. Um, slowly got us into that, uh, got me into that world. So that's how I grew up in law firms, um, starting off on like paralegal stuff, legal assistant work. But just throughout the whole time that we've been here in his whole career, he's had his main job, which is uh, the law firms, uh, working as a paralegal. But then along the way, he always had a knack for uh, buying distressed businesses, kind of turning around and selling them. So, and whenever he bought something, me and my brother were the ones that would end up working there and running it and being non-paid employees and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it exposed us to a lot of different worlds. Um, it obviously exposed us to the construction world. Um, ever since I was, what, six, seven, eight years old, 
one on construction jobs with my dad. Uh, from construction, he's at body shops, mechanic shops, apartment buildings, car washes, and it just exposes you to a lot of different worlds, a lot of different um, industries, a lot of different systems, what works, what doesn't work. Mm. Mm, your dad's still alive? Yes. Still lives in the, the area? Yep, lives about three, four blocks away from us. Really? He's, yep. he's, quite, he's quite a story. He, he came here uh, from Armenia and started working hard labor, construction, delivering pizzas, and then he ends up buying and flipping businesses and has a great career as a paralegal. That's a pretty good story. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's your, he's your American dream story. Uh, wow. 18-hour days, construction during the day, pizza delivery from 6 to 1 a.m., the whole nine yards. Wow. Does he still have some uh, side businesses today? Does he own a few that are still operating or has he flipped everything that he, that he bought and turned around? He kind of flipped everything. And with me and my brother being older, um, he kind of works for us with us. So he's a lot with my, a lot more with my brother. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. Interesting. Okay. Great story. And how about your mom? Did she just take care of the, she took care of the three kids or did she also have a career? Well, she took care of the family. She had a career as a hairdresser uh, whenever there weren't family and kid obligations. Uh, most <laughs> stay at home and hairdresser. Okay. All right. Cool. Very cool. Interesting story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You didn't want to go to law school though and be a lawyer for long term? Oh, very long time. Uh, very long time. Um, it just never worked out. I got burned out. And by then I was already working for law firms, uh, a couple of different firms. Um, I was also handling their civil department. And then law school, the more I worked in the legal world, the less, um, less exciting it was for me. Um, yeah. For me, it was always business. It was always newer opportunities. And I just never went through with it, never finished it up. You know, I did an internship when I was a senior in college because uh, I thought about maybe going to law school. And uh, I, I did an internship class over at a lawyer's office that my folks knew. And uh, after spending a, a couple of months there, I, I just thought to myself, like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to. This is, this is nothing like what I saw on TV. I don't want to do this for a living. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Any attorney that I worked for that was a lawyer for more than 15 years. They all said, look, it's great. Having a professional degree is great. Um, it's something you can always fall back on, but it's not necessarily all it's cut out to be. When I was going and interviewing at law schools, one of the counselors, deans, uh, they gave me some really good advice. They're like, look, law school doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer. It teaches you how to think like a lawyer. Mm. Um, until you actually get involved in your hands-on being a lawyer, mm -hmm. uh, that's all it is. So a lot of it is really just your mindset. And before that, the one of my... Uh, mentors back then. Initially in college, I was going to be a political science major. It was the easiest thing to do. Um, <laughs> so when I went to him and I was talking to him, he's like, look, um, your dad tells me about the whole poli-sci stuff. He's like, if you're going to be a lawyer and if you're going to be in front of a judge or you're arguing something, does it really matter um, your political science background? So if you're going to go down that route, you might want to consider changing a major to something like history or something like English, which is why I kind of moved over to the English side of it. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably one of the best things that was left over in that whole law school attempt journey. <laughs> so along the way, as your dad started buying and flipping businesses, I'm guess I'm assuming you also just became more interested in business overall and and how things operated and cap tables and ops agreements and architecting deals and all kinds of stuff, right? Absolutely, but it wasn't as much on the cap tables and 
financial modeling and stuff like that. It was your true old fashioned, small family, mom and pop business type of uh, setup. And as I got into more on this side, higher level business, um, obviously in hindsight, you kind of look back to how you could have scaled it back then. Mm-hmm. But then again, when you're looking at it, um, just the opportunity that was provided as immigrants, um, as a mom pop, as a small business opportunity, you really appreciate it. So whenever you get up to a lot higher level, and then you start understanding that there's levels to everything. There's the mom and pop level, there's small business level, there's the franchise level. Mm-hmm. The higher you go up, um, it's, it's just different rules, different guidelines, different priorities and stuff like that. But understanding that hands-on uh, small business side of it, you never forget it. Um, you always appreciate it. And you always try to, like today, what I try to do is I try to tie a lot of that to a lot of this higher level stuff. Mm-hmm, because right. small business is your fundamentals the higher level stuff the finance stuff it's it's scale it's finance it's uh, exits it's all that stuff but without the fundamentals without the heart and soul that small business provides none of that other stuff matters and none of it is really executable mm, completely agree so were you into cannabis like a, as a young kid, were you were you the trouble? Were you the troubled kid? Were you the kid that was in trouble? Were you buying and selling weed on the side when you were young? Uh, how did walk me into the cannabis uh, interest? You ask anybody that knew me in high school, in college, in early twenties, and you tell them that I was going to be in the cannabis industry and at the level I'm at, they would all laugh at you. I'm the guy that never <laughs> smoked, um, never did anything. I grew up in sports, athletics, uh, martial arts, um, in school. Freshman and sophomore year, I had honors classes. Um, I think uh, I had one AP class. My grades weren't necessarily reflective of it, but um, a lot of the schooling stuff just came a lot easier. Um, mm, a lot mm. of me staying away from the trouble side of it was, again, back to family uh, and all that stuff. I was a little bit of a troublemaker, but my problem was getting into fights more than it was uh, <laughs> any of the other stuff. So, but yeah, I was never even involved in it. In fact, never. I got in, yeah, when I got into this industry was probably when I first started trying to test it and sample it. Cause I started off on the cultivation site back in what, 2007-ish, 2006-ish. So when I got involved with it, for me, it was really understanding everything about the plant, the culture, the understanding of it. And I'm pretty resilient and persistent. So the first time I tried it, just passed out, threw up, all that stuff. I'm like, if I'm going to be in this industry, I got to be able to tolerate it. (laughs) But a lot of the reason that I got involved with it was partially a medical uh, need. And then partially it ended up being just seeing a business opportunity. But for me, it was just everything coming together. Mm -hmm. What'd your folks say when you said, hey, I'm going to get into cannabis? What would dad say? I'm just curious. It took a while. Uh, Keep in mind, coming from Armenian, uh, old Soviet Union, different type of a mindset mentality and stuff like that. It actually took uh, quite a bit of time. Um, started, I'd say about six months to a year, just talking to him about it and all this other stuff. And yeah, now he's, uh, now he works with us. And <laughs> but a lot of it was just more of that mindset change. Now, when I think of, uh, maybe I've seen too many movies, right? It's, it's, it's crazy how Americans, when we think about people from other countries, all we know is what we see in the movies, unless we've traveled a bunch. When I think about an Armenian dad, that's your how old's your dad? Sixty-two. Sixty-two. Yeah. When I think of a guy like that, I'm thinking pretty, pretty hardcore, pretty straight, pretty, pretty no nonsense. Like, 
not not a lot of uh, soft uh, hugs and kisses being passed out. I don't know. Is that accurate or no? Oh, it's cut and dry as you get. <laughs> I'll put it like this. My first job was, I was, what, 13 years old when I first uh, got my job. It was a small little Middle Eastern grocery store. Um, talked to the owner, got me a job as a bag boy on the weekends. Back then, minimum wage was $5, $5.25 an hour. Yeah. So I'm working. First week goes, second week goes by. I'm about to get my paycheck. He hands me $2 in cash uh, per hour. I'm like, what the hell is this? So I go home and talk to my dad. I'm like, minimum wage is five something. I'm going to pay $2 an hour. This is slave labor, all that stuff. He's like, no, he's like, I told him to pay you $2 an hour. You got to learn that how to make money. How <laughs> money just doesn't come. He's like, I don't care what the laws say or any of that stuff. You're going to work for $2 an hour. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, are you, uh, are you, uh, last question on family. I'm just curious. Are you, do you compensate for that with your own three small children? Do you find yourself being overly affectionate and lots, lots of hugs and stuff to, because of that? I'm just curious. Not really. Um, as much <laughs> as you try, <laughs> as you get older, like I'm going to do like this, I'm going to do that, but um, certain things I just wouldn't change. I am who I am because of what I went through and how I was disciplined and how I was brought up. And even yeah. with the kids, um, there's only so much you can tolerate as a parent. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of it stuck. Um, the smaller ones, the two-year-old, a lot more affectionate. The four-year-old, a lot more affectionate. My 10-year-old, it comes down to expectations. So it's not a love issue. It's an expectations type of issue. Yeah. You kind of know what they can do. You, you see the abilities and you see all that stuff. And uh, considering the world that we live in, um, it's kind of like erring on the side of uh, caution. Yeah. And there's an Armenian saying, it's like, it's better for the kid to cry today than for you to cry tomorrow. So, Ooh, I like that. Ooh, yeah, so it really I like down. that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use, I'm going to use that, that, that saying, okay, tell me. Um, so you started to touch on cannabis. So let's walk into, and, and hold on, hold on just a second. Just for the podcast listeners, they should know that I got I got all these lights, all these effing lights that are on me. Sometimes it gets hot. I got to turn my fan on. Forgot to turn my fan on. Um, what you started to get into uh, cannab the, uh, cannabis and how you got involved. So, talk to me about that. You, you did you start studying the wholesale? Were you kind of watching the market and then walk us into kind of your first experience? Go ahead. Yeah. So first, to really start off on the medical side, um, I had these. I developed some of these things, uh, kind of like a twitch in the eye. Went to an ophthalmologist. He's like, it's blackberry spasm. And then sent me to another doctor who said it's hemifacial spasm. And then as it went along, um, they were talking about major brain surgery where they got again through your skull and put a pad between your what? nerves yeah, to relieve the pressure off the blood vessels. So I'm like, okay, there's got to be an easier way. So I was actually probably about two months away from having that surgery. And then I knew about a lot around that time we were talking with the guys and uh, one guy it was my brother's friends we were hanging out. They're like, Hey, check out what I bought out of store in uh, Ventura and Sino. I'm like, you can't buy weed out of store in Sino Ventura. <laughs> about a week later, another group of friends, same kind of conversation. I'm like, okay, there's gotta be something there. He's like, no, it's medical and this and that. And they started looking into it. I'm like, okay, if it can medically, if it can do this and it's got that calming thing and all that stuff, mm. like, help me out with this stuff. So that's okay. where I really started researching it. 
both on the medical side than on the business side. Started putting off the whole surgery thing. But then after a while, um, I just, one thing led to another. And next thing I know, I'm in the cannabis industry. And I started what was your, you started off on what? In the cultivation sector. Uh, as an investor, as an operator, what was your entry point functionally? Garage operator. Um, it was one of those things where with my family, with my dad, with my brother, everything we do in business, we kind of do together. Um, legit family business type of a setup. So my dad's like, look, before you get, back then it was really the dispensary thing that was appealing to me. He's like, before you can get involved on the dispensary side, you got to understand what it is about the plan, how it works, how it functions, what it does, how it grows and all that stuff. Okay. He's like, Set it up in the garage, see what you can do with it. If you can do good with it, you can expand from there. Um, don't jump that kind of head first into it. And keep in mind, this is back in the old six, seven, eight-ish era uh, when the economy was also collapsing. So there was a lot of volatility going on. What well, are you telling? So, so you telling me that you learned how to you learned how to cultivate in your garage, basically? Oh yeah, I did that for about a year. Expanded out from there. Start off with four lights in the garage. Did that for a little bit. Um, set up as a collective. Um, started working with other people and because I needed to learn everything about it, I'd go out and I'd trim for other people. Um, I needed to understand it from the ground up. Before you can tell somebody or ask somebody what to do, you kind of got to know what's involved with it. Um, I totally you know, agree. Yeah, totally agree. Did you have a, did you have a license or this is just uh, on the down low? <laughs> no, it was set up as a collective. Uh, like I said, mine for the medical need uh, or that stuff, it was set up as a collective. And then one of the retailers that usually would pick up uh, all the excess product and we were uh, cultivating for them kind of got into a partnership with them i'm like look you're already picking up almost everything i'm producing why don't we just set up another location together um you put ah. up the, you take out the funds first in first out after that we'll go 50 50 and you can look at it two ways you can either look at it that whatever you're buying you're buying it for a 50 percent discount or you can treat it as a completely separate business you're still buying it for the same cost that you would buy from me from normally but you're at least yep. getting a little bit of the upside on the back end Mm. So that led to an additional 16 lights, 16 lights turned into 32 lights and took over from there. Were you making money early on or was it, were you burning cash? Wasn't making money, wasn't burning cash. Everything started with $4,000, uh, $6,000. Yeah, there was just a couple of luminaire lights, 600 watt luminaires in the garage. Uh, almost burned down the garage. Uh, <laughs> so the wiring, we ran it through the pool motor because it was the 220 light. And the guy that ran it didn't really understand that you have to change the circuit breaker. You can't have 40 amps of power running on a 20. On a, <laughs> the wire itself was for 20. It was uh, rated for 20 amps. So he swapped out the circuit breaker for 40, which means that your wire is burning, but the breaker is never tripping because it's got double the capacity ability. <laughs> One day I was the sleeping. I'm like, okay, I just got a funny feeling about this. So I called another electrician. I'm like, I got to tell him what I'm doing and or else there's a lot of bad things that can happen. The <laughs> wire had already started burning through. He's like, if you if you took another day or two, you'd probably burn the house down. He's like, this is how electrical fires start. So then wow. you start learning about the electrical needs and all that stuff. So that's why with this, I was fortunate in that when I got started in this industry, there weren't any resources available. You really had to dig in. You had to bring everything down to a fundamental level. Once you start understanding everything from a fundamental level, whether it's your electrical needs, your mechanical needs, your day-to-day -day operational needs and all that stuff. As you expand from there, it becomes that much more easier for you to really have that understanding. That's why for me, what I do today at 
that higher level, I understand it all the way from this level all the way down to the ground level. Mm, I love that. I love that. By the way, were you married at the time when you almost burned the house down? Uh, just got married. Actually, no. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. But you had, a, you had a serious girlfriend, fiance, whatever. Yep. She's probably thinking, okay, you're not, you, you, this is, you, you're going to kill us. This is, you know, you're going to get arrested. You're this is not making any money. Like what the hell am I doing with this guy? <laughs> oh, it was at the parents garage. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is good stuff. Okay. All right. So, so your entry point is wholesale, is cultivation, wholesale, and then retail dispensary. How big was your your family operation, and is that still in place today, as as far as a grow or dispensaries? No, the it was primarily on the cultivation side. Um, it was more of a collective model. Um, it was also cultivating for other collectives, and then as I started expanding that, um, obviously you end up having a lot more relationships. You have a lot of trimmers and all that stuff. And one of the things I always told my trimmers was, I'm like, look, you don't necessarily want to be a trimmer for me for life and all that stuff. And you're understanding how to run an operation, how to water, how to mix the nutrients, how to take care of the plants, the leafing, and everything that comes with it. I'm like, when you're comfortable and you can run your own uh, grow room or grow house, let me know. I'll bankroll it. Uh, first in, first out. I'll take my money out. And then from there, you were my trimmer during the day. You were my employee during the day. After work, go handle your own room and stuff like that. So it's a way for you to not just be a trimmer, have a lot more stake in the whole industry and all that stuff. So it was pretty profitable. I got what I needed out of them as an employee. I got what I needed out of them as a partner because they would all learn under me. Um, they would learn my ways of doing it and mm. help they provide their influence into it. But everybody was happy. Um, and for me, it was a way of Back then when you couldn't provide employee benefits, it was the best type of employee benefits you could provide. <laughs> Great model, by the way. Great idea. Did you give the uh, capital as an equity play or as a loan or both or kind of a mixed deal? No, it was an equity play. Um, I would uh, bankroll it. I would take my money out from the first, second harvest, whatever it was. After that, it was just a split. I see. Okay, great. Do you, so do you, do you have a stake in several operations across the country today? No. No, I oh. sold off everything back in 2012, 13, 14, when I got into more of the professional consulting and all that stuff. And so at some point, you, did you say, you said to yourself, okay, I'm, I don't want to be an operator anymore, but I know a shit ton that I've learned over the last 10 years. I'm going to, my, my services and my knowledge are valuable. People are calling me, asking questions. I'm just going to run a consulting firm. Is that is that what happened? Not really. Um, one of the buildings I was cultivating at. It was an industrial park. They had about 32 units. I had about six, seven of the units uh, for cultivation, again, with the different trimmers and all that stuff as partners. One day, my landlord gives me a call. And back then, I was also helping a lot of people uh, with their operations, informal consulting, if you will. For me, I had my way of my system of doing it. But in the cannabis industry, especially on the cultivation side, everybody's got the best grower in the world. And right. the only two growers agree on anything is when they agree the third one doesn't know what he's talking about. So for me, by helping them and understanding their systems on their current systems, drip systems, hydroponics, coil, soil, cocoa, all of it, that's what I was doing. And what it meant for the landlord was his other tenants were now able to pay him as rent because they were actually having successful harvest. So one day he gives me a call. He's like, look, I got a friend out in Massachusetts. They just passed the regulations out there. This is like 2012, 13. Mm-hmm. Like they just passed the regulations. They need a consultant and stuff like that. Can you talk to them? I'm like, sure. So I get on the phone with them. It was like a two, three hour conversation. 
And then I didn't really hear back from him for a couple of months. Then they gave me a call. They're like, hey, um, can you help us out with this whole process? What would you charge? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> We're not talking about growing or any of this stuff. I'm like, I'll tell you what, uh, fly me out there, pay, pay for my hotel and my flight. I'll come out there, spend a day or two with you guys. Um, let's see what comes of it. Um, if there's something we can do, we can work something out over there. So they flew me out. In fact, I was supposed to be out there when the Boston bombing happened. Um, oh. Yeah, so I got pushed back about a month or so, two months. Went out there, spent two days with them. By the end of the second day, they offered me a partnership um, ah. to be like their director of cultivation, head of cultivation. So that's how I got started with them uh, out there. That's what ended up uh, getting me to relocate to Boston. And then obviously came back. When I came back, because of everything that we had gone through over there, I'm like, I can't go back to cultivation. And with me and the business and the partnerships, I have to carry my weight. Um, even though I paid my dues to the partnerships I had in the grow operations, moving forward, I wasn't going to be involved with it. For me, it was going to be a situation where I'm staying home. I'm just getting my money, my cut of it. So I told my partners, each of them, like, look, this is how much I put in. This is what it's worth. Um, I don't need you to cash me out based on evaluation or stuff like that. Okay. Um, whatever I put in initially, seed capital, give me that back, take it over. It's yours. Um, I'm not going to be there. I don't want there to be resentment that builds up later on. I don't want you to come down six months, a year later saying, look, what the hell? I'm running the operation, but every month I'm giving you your cut and you're not lifting a finger. Yeah. So let's maintain the relationship, cash me out, uh, take over and off we go. The other part of the reason why I did that was I didn't want anything holding me back. Uh, if I put my mind to something, it's balls to the wall. Um, for me, it was something that was going to be more of a constraint having to worry about this or having to deal with that than it was being able to move forward. So I just cut off all ties um, to the past and it was like, you have no other options anymore. Better be successful. And then you uh, said, okay, I'm going I'm to open up a consulting firm and you called it SIVA, which is Ava spelled backwards. No, actually it was a uh, Bulbullion Consulting Group. Oh, okay. oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Talk to me about the, why that changed. Go ahead. So I wanted to maintain a professional image um, and I grew up in law firms and I understood that world and I knew what it was going to be. I was thinking Boston Consulting Group and stuff like that. Mm. And then the other reason was back then the directory, you didn't have a lot of people uh, like Canvas Industry directories. So I needed something that was like, when you go to a consultant, it's at the top of the list. If you go to <laughs> Canvas Industry, whatever, it's at the top of the list. And SIBO wouldn't do that. So I called the Bulbullion Consulting Group. Sure enough, that helped a lot. And the other reason was when I came out of the Boston, uh, the Massachusetts project, there were a couple of articles written. And when I went on back then, we had uh, pay-per-click and stuff like that. I can still do, but went on there and searched that my name was searched like 2,000 times in a matter of like two weeks. I'm like, okay, this is beautiful. Every time somebody searches my name, the website will come up. All right. So that's what I did. And then fast forward about a year or two into it, actually a couple of years into it, um, there was kind of a lull in state licensing. And back then we were really known for our state licensing work. And I'm like, look, this is the best opportunity to rebrand uh, because now I'm starting to see the opportunities open up beyond consulting. Uh, consulting serves its purpose. Um, it'll continue to serve its purpose, but now it's time to evolve and stuff like that. And the William Consulting Group, it was a little too much of a pigeonhole into that world. Okay. So like, okay, we got enough recognition where if we do a name change now, we'll still be able to carry a lot of it over. And that's where mm. it's 
Gotcha. Okay, so give me the three-minute or the two, three-minute SIVA pitch right now as of today. And by the way, you know, uh, for the listeners, you can find Avis, of course, on LinkedIn. You know, you can always you can always find him there. You can connect with him. Um, and then you can check out SIVA as well. Uh, and is it SIVA? It's SIVA dot SIVA LLC dot com, correct? Yes, sir. S-I-B-A LLC. Okay, great. Um, but give us the three-minute pitch, SIVA. Tell us, tell everybody what, what SIVA does and, and why it's special. Go for it. Sure. So one of our core competencies is state licensing. Um, we've had a pretty successful, ridiculously successful uh, run at state licensing for clients and across the country. So almost any state that's had some sort of a program, we were there. Um, okay. That allowed us to be involved with the process from the creation of the regulatory environment to the application process, to the state's implementation, to the businesses getting started and scaling and being what they are. So just the whole evolution of the market within those states. So that gives us a lot of experience across compliance, across operations, across just everything that has to do with business from idea all the way through to implementation and exit. So the consulting side of the business kind of evolved. Um, right now, currently where we're at is we spent the last year restructuring the company into more of a holding company. Uh, we still have SIVA Consulting, which is going to be the legacy consulting arm of the company. But then as we were looking at the opportunities, uh, we had an opportunity to do a reverse takeover and RTO and be a publicly listed company a couple of years ago. Ah. When the whole thing was all moving forward back in 2016-17. I didn't see that as an opportunity back then because it was still, I saw that it was going to be turning into a balloon um, and it was going to pop. So we stepped away, we focused on what we do. So we've got consulting. Now we're starting to take a lot of, we have clients in a lot of these different states. Um, the main complaint that they've always had about the industry as a whole is like, look, we're kind of stuck siloed in our own little environment, our own little state, our own little state market. We want to be able to scale, but without having to sell out everything. So the way I was thinking it is, for us, the license is not your business. The license simply authorizes an activity which is one of the reasons why a lot of these businesses are failing because there is no business model there. They're trying right. to license as the business. So for us, we were looking at it for the past couple of years and it's like, okay, we've got all the relationships in all these states. We've got all the license holders in all these states. We, they've got all their facilities fully built out, but they're lacking that feeder. So it's kind of like building the, the machine without having anything to feed into it. <laughs> and with our relationships, we've got all the feeders in the world. So we restructured as a holding company, maintained SIVA Consulting as a legacy consulting arm to it. We're launching SIVA Ventures. SIVA Ventures is more of the partnership uh, arm of the company where we're going to be able to consolidate and become the common denominator for all our former clients, all our friends, and everybody that's got their licenses and their facilities in the state. And looking at it on the brand side, what we launch in one state can now get shelf space overnight in every other state that we happen mm. to have a presence in. So then we started looking at it. It's like, well, how do we do this to really scale it at a ridiculous level and provide a lot more you add to our partners one of the things that we're really good at because of our understanding of the supply chain of the different state markets of the international market um the only thing that was missing was coming in and providing the capital so we just launched siva capital which should ah. be fully deployed by september october of this year okay so earlier this year we were looking at the spac space uh, and consolidating over there. But then we started figuring out, it's like, well, you're just going to pick up somebody else's liability. So we're in the process of creating a um, 
a retail concept that's not just for cannabis, it's for retail across the board that incorporates uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and the whole nine yards. So we launched Siva Capital. Uh, we're in the process right now, the next couple of weeks. So where we've got consulting on one arm, we can advise and see the guide a lot of the people that are looking to get into the industry or scale their businesses. We've got the ventures arm, which is gonna be consolidating a lot of our current relationships more on an operational level. And then we're launching Siva Capital, which is gonna be able to come in and provide the capital for it. So for the guy that's just starting out in the industry and they need the consulting services, well, we can now provide the consulting services, help them through the licensing process, open up all our uh, relationships through our Rolodex and make that available to them. And we can also step in and uh, put our money where our mouth is and also write the check and provide the capital for them. If you've got the guys that are already in the business, they've scaled or they're looking for an exit, we're able to uh, help them realize that exit by being able to cash them out. So it's really about creating a national umbrella and being able to absorb all the pieces in there. But what's different about our model versus a lot of models where it's all about consolidation is for us, we're not looking to do it for ourselves. We're not looking to have SIVA cultivation, SIVA manufacturing, SIVA dispensaries, where it's all things SIVA. We're getting to a point in the industry where back a couple of years ago, when you mentioned cannabis, everybody thought initially retail. And then as investors got involved, it was cultivation because on paper, you can make anything pencil out. Overnight, you're a billionaire. The way we look at it is we've got all, the, all this opportunity. We've got all these relationships. Um, how do we pay it forward? How do we, how do we create an opportunity, create a playground where other people can participate, where their success ultimately becomes our success and vice versa? Mm-hmm. But for us, it was really more about that, um, trying to be call a good corporate citizen and taking the positioning that we have and paying it forward and providing it to those that don't have it. So Siva Capital will be a one-stop shop for just about anything you need, whether it's money to get rolling, whether it's uh, consulting on how to get a license, whether it's how to set up a facility, how to exit, how to get acquired, how to make an acquisition, you name it, a one-stop shop. Is that, is that correct? That would be Siva. So Siva would be the one-stop shop. Uh, through Siva, you'll have Siva Consulting. You'll have Siva Ventures. For partnerships and stuff like that and you'll have siva capital which will be the capital arm of uh, of the organization do you want to go international and work in uh you know across the globe as well or are you focused on the u.s uh we are we do have interest across the globe like right now we have a client in korea that's looking to get into the uh, u.s market with their technology and all that stuff so we do provide international consulting um mexico is one that we've been looking at that's on the consult side. On the operational side, it is going to be primarily U.S. So the way we look at it is it all starts from U.S. Uh, no matter how many countries legalize this or anything, all eyes are on the U.S. U.S. is going to be the number one driver of this. And when okay. you take a look at the U.S., California is the biggest economy within the biggest economy and biggest driver. So us, we're fortunate enough to be in California. Uh, so we're in the biggest market as it is. So if we can build a better mousetrap here, and start expanding it from there, at some point it all becomes licensing agreements and licensing deals. By being involved on the consulting side in a lot of these other countries, by advising all these other operators in all these other countries, what that also does is it kind of reserves our seat in the future uh, for Mm. those opportunities. Just like on the consulting side over the past several years, we went through all these different states and we helped all these companies get set up and be positioned. 
now it's like, well, okay, which state do we want to play in? So mm-hmm. for business, a lot of the success really comes down to position. You can have the best ideas in the world and all that stuff. If you don't know how to get to it, if you don't have that roadmap, if you don't have the position to be able to execute, none of it really matters. Are you looking to take an equity stake in the companies that you help or, or just get paid as a consultant or both? So on the consulting side, from day one, I had a rule. We never charge a success fee. Um, and this especially at a time when everybody was charging a success fee, percentage of revenues, equity. For me, it was, I always put myself in the client's shoes. If I'm writing that check, what kind of service do I want? And once you help me with this, well, what's the long-term value add for me to give you equity? So for us, it was always like, look, the equity is yours. You're already paying us to do what you're paying us to do. I don't need that equity, but I'll give you the option. This is what I'll charge. If you want to uh, limit a lot of your upfront expenses, I have enough confidence in what I do. I have enough confidence in the clients that I select, and we're pretty selective about it, that I don't mind letting a lot of my upfront fee ride for success on the back end. But I leave that option to you as a client. Here's my fee upfront, payment terms and all that stuff. If you want to save it, I have no problems. I'll let all of it ride on the success of the application, on the success of your company. But you make that decision, not me. And I won't force you mm-hmm. into it. Gotcha. Okay, very good. Let me ask you some questions about um, what you see in the future. So let's fast forward. Let's say it's you know federally approved across the country. And let's just assume uh, for this question that it's legal globally. Every country's growing it. Every country's selling it. Whatever. When that happens, do all these small mom and pops, do they, do they go away? Do they get consolidated? Does, does big pharma step in? Does big beverage step in? And all of a sudden, there's no more small people. Where do you see it going? You have to analyze it at a couple of different levels. On one okay. level of analysis, what we call the medical and adult use market today In the future, I think it's really going to be segmented into three different markets. What we call medical today is really your future uh, um, nutraceutical uh, market. Okay. The future medical market is going to be a little more formal. Um, That's your transdermal patches, your sublinguals and uh, nebulizers and stuff like that. And obviously, you're always going to have the adult use where you don't need any medical condition. Um, as long as you're over the age of 21, you can go consume whatever you want to consume. So a lot of it, the product doesn't change. It comes down to the intent of the use. It's the same product, whether you're taking it for medical purposes or adult use for uh, recreational. Mm-hmm. The difference is you're paying a little more in taxes. And uh, adult use usually has uh, dosage, dosage restrictions. So depending on what market area you're playing in, those are some considerations as far as what the future industry market is going to look like. When we look at the cannabis industry, we don't look at it as a single industry, completely isolated. It's more of a supply chain. Manufacturing is it's traditional manufacturing. Uh, cultivation is horticulture. Retail is traditional retail. The principles that apply in those sectors, those industries, mm-hmm. regardless of what the plant or what the product is, it's still going to apply to this industry. So once you get federal prohibition lifted, um, once you're allowed to do it a lot cleaner, it's going to come down to what industry you're in. So if you're a manufacturing company, let's say you're a co-packer, you're a manufacturer, you have a bunch of brands, your exit is going to be to the Johnson & Johnsons of the world, the manufacturing companies of the world. Mm-hmm. If you're a retailer, your exit is going to be to probably someone that's a traditional retailer. Mm. On the cultivation side, you're going to be a little bit more limited on exit opportunities. 
but a lot of it is not just a single industry, it's what sector do you play in? You might be an accountant that set up an accounting firm that picked up a lot of business in the canvas industry and you're exclusively providing your services to the canvas industry. You still have an exit to a bigger accounting firm that today doesn't touch it, doesn't touch the industry people. But when they come in, they're not looking to organically go pick up one account at a time. They're going to buy out the small accounting firm, consolidate them, and just pick up the portfolio of business from them. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about exits in the future of all these businesses, it's a, well, what is your business? What area are you playing in? Delivery I see. Services, you're a little bit different of an exit. So, mm-hmm. but as far mm-hmm. as what the future holds for the current operators, it's, I like to say it's kind of like instead of helping build the new, a lot of them are fighting the uh, fighting the old instead of trying to uh, work on rebuilding it. You've got a lot of mom pop dispensary operators, and yes. I think as far as the mom pops, they're the ones that are going to be hit probably the hardest because even if you compare it today to ten years ago, if you had a dispensary, you're doing pretty decent, you're doing pretty good, you're doing well for yourself and your family. Today, it's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more difficult to be competitive against mm-hmm. not even MSOs, just even the one shop down the street from you. That is taking more of a branding approach and type of approach. Long term, when the retailers come in, again, you're always going to have that value to be able to sell out. I think everybody that's talking about an exit where their one dispensary is going to be worth 40, 50, 60 million dollars in the future, I think it's not even close to it. I think it's going to be a nice little small retirement fund. Keep yeah. in mind, there's value in the license. There's value in the business. What exactly are you selling? If I'm an established company, I don't need your business. Right. I need your license to authorize me to conduct the activity that I'm conducting at the location that I'm looking at thing. So what's the paper value of that license to allow me to authorize, to authorize me to do that activity? Then you've got the business side of it. A really good example to really understand the difference between the business and the license is take manufacturing and I'll use Coca-Cola, for example, right? Let's say Coca-Cola required a license to manufacture Coca-Cola products at that facility. If I'm Coca-Cola and I'm looking to expand into another state, all I need is a license. There's nothing about the business I'm acquiring that is relevant to me. Mm. So I'm going to pay you for the paper value of your license. What happens when... States and the federal government say anybody can have a license. Anybody, anybody that wants to open a convenience store can open a convenience store. We're not going to stop you. All of a sudden, those millions of dollars that people paid for those licenses are what happens then? <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to get to a point where it's a free-for-all. Um, okay. I think it's at least for the foreseeable future. Um, it's probably going to be considered a privileged license, and you're going to have to demonstrate certain things, kind of like the whole application process. But it's not going to, every year it becomes that much easier to get mm-hmm. a license. So you look at the New York process back in 2016. They gave about five licenses in the first go around. The poor bastard that came in sixth place lost by 0.2 points. And they probably spent a million, million something on that license. You look at the acquisitions, right? Medman yeah. paid what? 40, 50, 60 million for their license. Iantis paid what? 40, 50, 60 million for their license. Right. New York's about to roll out another application process where the cost of applying is probably going to be about four to 500,000 and they're <laughs> going to give out that many more licenses. So a lot of the people, not so much the ones that applied and won their license like that, but the ones that acquired it, they're the ones that are, it's going to stink, um, mm-hmm. which is right. one of the reasons a lot of them are also kind of 
trying to prevent the expansion of the market. But uh-huh. they do have the upper hand in that whenever a state does come online, a jurisdiction does come online, they're able to say, look, we've got licenses in five states and we've got 20 licenses and all that stuff. Long term, um, it's not a free-for-all. It's still going to hold its value. It's kind of like alcohol licenses. Okay. Okay. Look at the, look, yeah, look at cabs, right? Taxi cabs before uh, Uber came out, a single medallion, um, the right to have a cab of 100,000, 150,000 per cab. Uber comes out, the same medallion is not even worth 5,000. <laughs> I didn't, okay, okay, I didn't think of it like that. <laughs> Well, what so so are people making money in cannabis? I mean, in general, I, I, I hear so many things. I've talked to so many people. Our firm, Rider Flex, is a recruiting firm. We've placed a crap ton of people inside cannabis. So I know lots of owners. I hear many different stories. Most of them are, yeah, trying to get out now. Yeah, just got out, didn't make a ton. Uh, didn't make what I thought I was going to. Yeah, I'm holding some stock, but it's in it's in Canada and it's not doing that well. I mean, I hear a bunch of different stories more on the side of I didn't make as much as I thought I was going to. <laughs> the small guy's making a lot more than the big guy. Mm. Um, the big guys, I don't think any of them are profitable, um, mm. which mm. is why I don't hold a single stock in a single cannabis company. Um, <laughs> Unless I'm going to short it, it's not worth it. Gotcha. That's uh, not financial, <laughs> but <laughs> the guys that stick to the basics, stick to the fundamentals, and it doesn't have to be the fundamentals of canvas. It's just fundamentals of business. They're making money. Once they start looking at it and having a bigger appetite and scaling it, that's when they start losing money. They bleed money. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very sexy industry. You got, a, a, for instance, a person that's relatively unknown. All of a sudden, they're getting quoted in newspapers and all that stuff. It doesn't take much to start living the lifestyle than actually running it a business. <laughs> right. Yeah, I could, yeah, there's some millionaire from New York. He invested in cannabis. Now he's popular with his friends. He goes to Vegas. The chicks are hanging all over him. He loves the lifestyle. All of it. And that's what it is. It's living a lifestyle more than it is running it as a business. And the small guy, the small business guy, the guy that's got one dispensary, the guy that's got uh, four or 5,000 square foot grow operation, <coughs> they're successful. And <coughs> the reason that they're successful is it's basic. It's fundamentals. It's I got to produce, I'm producing this much. It's costing me this much. I'm selling it for this much. I just made this much. <laughs> Once they start getting into trying to step it up as far as levels without understanding what is the what the requirements are at that level or how do you get to that level mm-hmm. they start spending money on things that they don't need they start paying salaries for thing, for positions that they don't need um yep. yep i see it all the time totally see it see it all the time definitely uh interesting uh yeah i i appreciate your uh you know perspective on that because i i agree definitely they they're paying these salaries that are crazy and i know as a recruiting firm they'll call us and they'll say i want to pay a head grower 300 grand a year and i'm like what why <laughs> exactly which is one of the reasons why you have so much turnover in the industry and the other problem is even with the hiring everybody's looking at it on the opportunity side of it so a lot of times when you're hiring an employee besides the fact that you're paying for education stuff like that that employee is not necessarily looking at a long-term commitment um, right they're not 
they're looking for a stepping stone. They're looking to do their own thing, which is perfectly fine. You know, I always tell my employees, I don't, as much as I would want you to be with me forever for the rest of your life, so I don't necessarily have the expectation. For yeah. me, all I could do is provide you with the opportunity. But as long as both sides are going into it with the same understanding, it's like, tell me you're going to be with me for a year. Tell me you're with me for two years. Tell me that you're just looking for the opportunity. Um, there's a lot mm -hmm. of ways to structure this, but don't lead me down a different route, a different road. Yep. So, Let me uh, yep. 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 Let me ask you this. Uh, I, I get this all the time. As a, you know, as a recruiter, we get people calling us all the time, executives from whatever, Chevron, Coke, Pepsi, you know, Kraft, you name it, uh, you know, and they're like, hey, I want to get in the cannabis industry. <laughs> I, I have conversations with them all the time. I'm like, okay, uh, let's talk about it, Mr. Fortune 500 career executive, never worked for a small business, and now you think you want to get into cannabis. Let's, let's have a conversation. <laughs> what what advice I, I've given a ton of advice on this topic, but I'd like to hear from you. What advice would you give right now to a Fortune 500 executive who thinks he wants to get into cannabis? Why? <laughs> um, <laughs> I can see the why, but it's you really got to pick and choose your opportunity. Um, right. you, you've got a lot of executives, high level executives that do have experience building companies. Then you've got a high level executives that have never really built a company in their life, but they know how to run the ship at a very high level. Right. Okay. The main thing that a high level executive looking at getting into the canvas industry needs to understand is forget about what you read about any of these companies, forget about what they look like on paper. Almost every single one of these companies are startups. Yes. Even if they're an MSO, even if they're publicly listed, even if they, they carry a valuation of $2 billion. They're a startup. That's right. <laughs> they're all failing because they're not understanding that. So look at all the MSOs, all the publicly listed ones. Most of them are going through a turnaround. Yep. Um, but here's the problem. They're swapping out one executive for another executive that's coming in, picking up that guy's liability. He actually just cut him loose. He doesn't have to worry about answering to the board anymore. But the new executive comes in. It's like, okay, well, where are you going to turn him around to? Where are you going to steer him to? What are you going to do mm -hmm. that the other guy didn't do beyond cutting wages and cutting payroll and cutting some salaries and stuff like that? If you don't know where your destination is, if you don't know how to build it as a business, as a startup, you're just collecting a salary for as long as you can collect the salary. And getting cannabis on your resume, which is what a lot of them are trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. How about this? I know we're running short on time, but I want to get a couple more questions in real quick if I can. Um, cause I could talk to you for another three hours, but I want to ask you a couple more. How about this quick advice for people thinking about investing in cannabis? Uh, I don't know. You can't, you know, anybody that wants to spend money, open a dispensary, you know, put a bunch of money into a cultivation. What would you tell them? What is your objective? Um, I've got guys that come in and I ask them, and this is just investors or anybody that's coming in looking to get into the cannabis industry, right? Well, what do you want to do? Dispensary. Why? Well, it's the cannabis industry. I'm like, it's not the cannabis industry. Dispensary <laughs> is you getting into the retail business. That's right. Advice <laughs> for an investor. So forget about what you read on a, on a financial pro forma. Like I said, give me a pen and paper. Well, actually, not me. Give my CFO a pen and paper. Everything will pencil out. A million dollar investment will spit out uh, 500x return in the next six months. It's not real. It's not practical. 
forget about the fact that it's the canvas industry. Yes, attach a little bit of a premium to it. But if you wouldn't invest in that company, if you wouldn't invest in a traditional retail business, why would you invest into it as a cannabis business? There's gotta be a business model there. There's gotta be fundamentals there. When I look at, for instance, a lot of the raised decks, a lot of the fish, then I get a hell of a lot of raised decks. On the retail side, particularly, I'm like, what's your differentiator? Oh, customer service. It's like, well, that's your foundation. That's not a differentiator. <laughs> That's a, if you're going, if you don't even have customer service as your baseline, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Uh, so, branding. Everybody, everybody wants to create the Apple Store. It's like, well, that might work for Apple. But what is the consumer? What does the consumer uh, experience feel like? That's what you got to work on. That's how you got to differentiate yourself. It's not just customer service. Um, <laughs> go to the boardroom. Go to what is it? Ninety nine designs. Put up a couple hundred dollars. You'll get yourself a logo and a name. A logo and a name doesn't make a brand. There's that's a right. brand equity that's built there. So well, for the investor yep. specifically, it's understand the fundamentals. I mean, look, if you look at cultivation, you look at retail, you look at manufacturing, there's different business models that come with all those licenses. But everybody's got a great idea. Ultimately, it's going to come down to the team that's going to execute. If you don't have the team that's going to execute, and forget about resumes, I've been burned a lot by resume people. It's not even the resume. Oh, this guy worked at Apple. This guy, so what? <laughs> what is their experience in this specific role taking a company that's here or taking a project that's here and bringing it up to here? Right. If you don't have the team to execute, you don't have a business. You're not going to have a business. Couldn't agree more. And, it's, and on the brand piece, I know uh, several, several famous people, I won't mention the names on this, this show, that thought just because of their name, they could slap it on a label and start a, start a cannabis uh, brand. It's, it's not that easy. <laughs> it's the flavor of the month. It's yeah. the flavor of the month, nothing more. That's right. Unless yep. you're actually buying, get that consumer buy-in where the consumer trusts your brand. Look at Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson can put out almost anything, but they, the customer's going to buy it. Why? Because the customer tr trusts that name. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what they're putting out. And even with the celebrity endorsements, it's kind of the same thing. What are you doing as a celebrity, as a public figurehead? What are you doing for me as the consumer? Why should I trust you? Let me buy into you. I'll buy what you're selling. But just mm. because you've got record labels and this and that, okay, so call it X person's OG. So what? And what <laughs> yeah. a lot of the business people don't understand is, and I get a lot of this one. Oh, I got a guy's got a license. I got an opportunity to do to sign up this uh, celebrity and launch a brand for him. I'm like, you're going to lose money. Well, do you know? I'm like, I know who the celebrity is, but you're going to lose money. And I'll explain to you why. A, how much are you going to pay him as a signing bonus? B, how much of a cut are you, are you giving him? 10%, 8%, 12%. Some of them are even coming in at 20%. But here's my point. If I'm selling this product in the store, the market can only carry a certain price tag. If this price is whatever, let's say for the sake of argument, 50 bucks. Right. By attaching this person's name to it, A, I'm paying that person a cut of that sale, which means for me to actually have some margin and stuff like that, there's two ways to increase your margin. You either got to raise the price that you're selling it at, or you got to lower your cost of production. In this industry, it's pretty difficult to raise the price tag, which means anything that you're giving up to that celebrity is eaten into your margin. And your cost of production isn't going any lower on that. But my point is, if I'm selling this for $60 by attaching a certain person's name to it, can I get $70 for it? Probably not. Probably not. 
because it's much I lost a lot of money on that signing bonus. So <laughs> I'm like, look, you got to get whoever your celebrity is that's going to endorse it. You got to get a certain kind of a buy-in from them. Um, either. Last last question I could because I could talk to you for another. I know I know I only booked you for an hour. Can you give me um, what share? Just I, you probably have a million crazy stories. Like if me and you were having beers, you could. There's no telling what you could share with me. <laughs> but can you share one without without mentioning any names or a specific company? Just a funny crazy story, like something you saw at a facility, something that happened in a conference room, something that happened at a cannabis convention that was just completely you came back you told your wife you're like wow i can't believe i just that just happened oh my god where do you start right i got i got stories stories on every level you can possibly think i about. believe it from a client <laughs> investor going to colorado flying back on his private jet and then being met by the dea because his ex-wife found out and they had this whole thing going on <laughs> Uh, I had another one where something that's a little more relevant, I guess. Um, what you see at a lot of these conferences, you either gain respect or you lose respect for people. Right. Uh, right. People forget that. Okay, yeah, you're in the canvas industry. Yes, it's a it's a product that you consume. You could be intoxicated, and you are intoxicated, right? Yep. When you go to these conferences, there's a certain level of professionalism that needs to be maintained. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, and this is very true for a lot of the investors and the people that have an opportunity to interact with a lot of these investors, you've got an opportunity where you're in the business of cannabis, you go to a conference and you bump into an investor or somebody that's pretty high net worth and all that stuff, makes your day and all that stuff. And now you start talking about business opportunities and Hey, well, maybe an even investment opportunity, stuff like that. And then the after party starts. Yeah. <laughs> At the after party, a lot of that professionalism gets thrown out the window. Right. But here's what happens. That same person that was courting this potential investor, that was courting this potential business partner, advisor, or whatever it is, all of a sudden gets so hammered at the after party, a lot of times end up making an ass out of yourself yep even if you don't take it to that level see keep in mind the investor let's say he's worth a billion dollars let's say he's worth a hundred million dollars whatever he's worth he's already made it he doesn't right. need one opportunity from another opportunity. it doesn't matter if he misses one he gets another one a lot of times for the bigger guys that go to these conferences it's exciting for them because they don't come from the cannabis world uh, they don't come from a world where consumption is all around them. The product is all around them. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. when they're at a show, all of a sudden it's like everywhere you go, people are vaping on the blackjack tables and all that stuff. Um, for them, it's more of a business vacation than it is strictly right. And every single one of them is super friendly. Just because you get to party with that person after hours or at a club and a little too much to drink. Yeah. Everyone's going to have fun you might end up losing a deal over stuff. That's like right. That. I've seen it a million you times. Yep. You got to retain that professionalism. You got to, there's a reason why you're at that conference and it's not to get hammered. If you're going to Vegas to get hammered, go to Vegas and call it a vacation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so and obviously it's not all work and no play. 
we've all had that thing where it's like one too many drinks and stuff like that. But um, I see too many deals get blown up because of stuff like that. And the next day they wonder why. Yeah, you right. got a healthy story to tell. But ultimately, <laughs> did you accomplish the mission and the reason why you were at, uh, you spent that money to go to that conference? Yeah, I, par- I, partied with, I partied with Bob the billionaire and thought it was fun. But for some reason, this week he won't return my calls. <laughs> yep. When they do return your call, they don't, they don't treat you with the same level of seriousness that they mm. would have. Mm. Mm. Because good, keep in good. mind, the guy that's writing a check for even a million dollars, $500,000, $100,000, put yourself in the person's position that's writing a check. Right. What kind of expectation do you have in the person that you're writing that check to? That person is ultimately responsible for getting your return on your investment. Right. <laughs> if they're out there getting hammered and um, stripping or vomiting, and it's like, I'll find another, I'll party with you, but I'll do business with somebody else. <laughs> you know what I love about you, Avis, and what I can see is so valuable in the consulting and all the services you provide. Just several things here. Uh, Number one, you are a super straight shooter. Like you don't mess around. You don't beat around the bush. You just say it like it is, but you're not, but you're not an asshole or, 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 or a dick about it. You're just like, Hey, here are the facts. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to have, I'm going to tell you the facts because this is what's going to help you if you're paying me and I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to tell you shit just because you want to hear it. I'm going to tell you stuff to help you and make you money. And I'm doing that from all of these experiences and things that I've seen, uh, which I think makes your, your consulting firm super valuable. And I, and I love your style. And I think the industry needs your style a lot more. I think, I think the industry definitely needs straight shooting guys who don't mess around and tell you like it is and don't sugarcoat stuff. Um, your, your experience is super valuable, valuable. So I love your style. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I love it. Love it. I want to tell the listeners one more time, SivaLLC.com. Now, will Siva Capital, are you going to launch a new website or a new URL? Do you want to mention that? No, we're going to have everything feed off of Siva LLC. And over the next couple of months, we will be making some announcements. So it's going to be an exciting second half. Okay. I really appreciate you being on the Rider Flex podcast, Davis. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.